What does the future hold for our late-stage capitalist society with mega-corporations owning and controlling everything? How can the world-building skills of the makers of films and comics help us imagine a better future? Kyle Higgins is an Eisner Award-nominated number one New York Times best-selling comic book author and award-winning filmmaker known for his work on DC Comics' Batman titles as well as his critically acclaimed reinventions of Mighty Morphin Power Rangers for Boom Studios, Hasbro Ultraman for Marvel Comics, and his creator-owned series Radiant Black, No One, and Deep Cuts for Image Comics. Kyle is the founder and creative director of Black Market Narrative and The Massiverse. Karina Manischel is the president of Mad Solar, which she formed in partnership with Scott Muscuddy and Dennis Cummings in 2020. She is the executive producer of the Ty West trilogy X, Pearl, and Maxine, and received an Emmy nomination as an executive producer on the Netflix animated event Enter Galactic. She also produced the Muscuddy Kyle Higgins comic book Moon Man. Karina Manischel, Kyle D. Higgins, welcome to the creative process. Thank you. We're so excited to be here. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah. Well, of course, it's welcome back for Karina and congratulations to you both on the launch of Moon Man, which is Kid Cudi's comic debut, which is for me so fascinating and engrossing this sci-fi story of a man on a mission beset by a journey gone wrong. And then the anxiety and alienation sets in. Before we dive into that story and then not to give too much away, just tell us how you both came to the project. Yeah. So, you know, I'm partnered with Kid Cudi and we'll call him Scott from here on out as we did last time. And this really started with him looking around the industry and feeling like Black superhero characters had either been exploited or you're hearing the fourth character in Fantastic Four. And Scott really had a resonant experience growing up with comics and wanted to create the superhero of today, the kind of modern culture facing hero. So his background, which is kind of interesting, when Scott used to go to the comic book stores as a kid, he saw this comic, his favorite, Scud the Disposable Assassin, and he read Scud as Scott Mess Cuddy. So he was like, oh, this comic is for me. When I was younger, I used to draw all the time. So cartoons, comic books, anything visual just got me really quickly when I was younger. And I wanted to be a cartoonist up until I was 14, 15. And then I had this idea to be a rapper. But animation, cartoons, these were things that I was super passionate about. It's something that never changed throughout my life. You know, as I grew older, I still had an interest in comics. I still had an interest in animation. And reading comics as a kid was great for me because what I would do sometimes, because I used to airbrush and I would take pictures from the comic and draw them and make them bigger and have these big blown up pieces that I would do. There was one comic that I was really obsessed with that I used to do drawings of all the time and that was Scud the Disposable Assassin. That was really the first comic that I read that I felt like, oh, this is a unique story. This is new and different and I haven't seen anything like this before. Of course, I read like the Superman, the Spider-Man, the Batman and all those comics, but there was also like Scud and the Sonic the Hedgehog comics and the Ninja Turtle comics and things like that. So like when I was in like first First grade, I would draw Ninja Turtles and basically I would sell the artwork to my friends, to my class. So like, you know, one side, if I had one image of a turtle, I would sell it for 50 cents. And if I had a front and back picture, it would be a dollar. It was like my little side hustle in the first grade. But it, it also let me know that my work was good. You know, people actually wanted it and people were checking for me to do artwork of turtles all the time. So, yeah, I started off a little business in the first grade. Well, as a lot of my fans know, this Moon Man thing has been kind of like my theme from the very beginning. And I think it wasn't until my fourth album, Indicud, where I really started to conjure up a world where this Moon Man character existed. And I don't know how many people got a chance to see that Cut Life tour that year where I wore a spacesuit. That was kind of like my first entry into making him a real thing. And on the suit, there was little details that gave you a little bit of the story. The album Satellite Flight was the name of the journey that I was trying to take the character on. And he was a part of this satellite academy, this ragtag group of soldiers that work and have a base on the moon. And I had this whole backstory, so that's how I came up with the whole theme of the spacesuit. But on that album, if you know, I had like that intro, The Resurrection of Scott Meskety, and all those intros, that was me kind of scoring this, this movie. 
in my mind this story of like who this Moon Man character was. It was very vague. You know, I didn't have any details. You know, I want to take the listener on this ride where this character I've been talking about for the past five years is, you know, a real thing. A couple years ago, it kind of got to this point where I was like, man, this is something that I want to actually bring to life. And I thought telling it in comic form would be the best way. And I thought there was no other better person. We were reaching out and we were thinking about people to work with. You mentioned Kyle and I just did my research and I was like, yes, he's the guy. <laughs> you know, it was like a no brainer. And, and as you guys know about all of his other work, you know, he's the fucking guy. I was like, wow, I really finally have an opportunity to make something that I've spent 15 years of my career building, making it a real thing and bringing him to life. And he said, well, let's build out a comic book. But there was no beginning to a comic book without Kyle. And I'll start just with a little shout out to my husband, because the reason we met Kyle was because my husband, Stuart Manishal, works with him. So as soon as we were starting to ideate a comic, Stuart said, put the phones down, only call Kyle. And that truly was the greatest gift this man has given me outside of my two children. So <laughs> Kyle Higgins. It's so funny. I was going to do the exact same thing. I was going to throw Stuart under the bus for this one. <laughs> and we realized, well, we realized on stage the other night as we were telling the origin story and Scott was like, so we were, I could see the wheels turning in his head too, as he was trying to remember, wait, how did we connect with Kyle? <laughs> Karina and I were talking about it afterwards and we were like, yeah, we gotta. We really need to throw Stuart under the bus on this one in a positive yeah. way, in the best positive. But Stuart has this this way of communicating sometimes that Karina would it be fair to call it like terse might be sound strong of a word, but essentially <laughs> so, the graph into the point. <laughs> the way Karina and I met. So Stuart's my manager. The way Karina and I met was Stuart just emailed both of us. And he said, "Kyle, talk to Karina." Zero context, no idea who this is. Just sure, I'll take this meeting. Uh, and as we started talking and Karina was telling me about the ambitions of both the project, the property, the character, but also the real kind of love of comics that Scott has and the desire to to go about this. We don't have video on this podcast, but I'm putting my, my fingers in air quotes the right way with regards to how to make a comic and to tell a sequential story and build the type of monthly series that is what Scott loved growing up and what all of us predominantly that have found our way into comic books as a career, what all of us loved about the serialized monthly storytelling format. And so as we started talking and kind of going through what this could look like, I'd also been doing, I, I run a creator-owned superhero universe at Image Comics called The Massiverse, which is spearheaded by the main book I write called Radiant Black. I like to describe it as it's like Power Rangers with adult problems. It's like very contemporary kind of reimaginings of superhero storytelling for the 2020s. So in that context, then talking about what any type of new superhero, and in this case, what a new black superhero in 2024 could look like, what the threats would be, what the world might look like. If it's not even five minutes in the future, I would argue it's like two and a half minutes in the future. And then what kind of really, I think, complex, emotionally layered journey we could put this character through. Indeed. Just describe a bit of the failed mission and the mystery around that. Sure. So one of the things that was really important to Scott from the get-go, and it definitely coincides with his own kind of love and fascination with the moon and space and the cosmos, was that this is a mission that our main character, Ramon Townsend, who is, he's an astronaut and a pilot, this is a mission that he has dreamed about since he was a very young boy, since he used to make his mother read him Goodnight Moon next to the window so he could wave. Unfortunately, though, much like a lot of us, you know, kind of elder millennials, the world that we thought we were going to be coming of age in and then entering into as an adult isn't the world that exists now. And a lot of those institutions, a lot of those ideals, a lot of that is gone. And I'm not the first person to, to coin us as a late stage capitalist society. Increasingly, it very much feels like that when you're talking about mega corporations that are only interested in controlling for the sake of owning and controlling. That original sense of discovery that I think attracted Scott and, and myself, honestly, to outer space, kind of some of those ideals that NASA used to represent, discovery for the sake of discovery and exploring for the sake of the human species and the human condition, 
those are the tenants that kind of we all thought we were going to be entering into as artists, as as scientists, as explorers. And so when a mega corporation named Janus, which is the fictional corporation in, in Moon Man, when that corporation headhunts Ramon to be one of the main astronauts and pilots for some of their commercial space flight endeavors, Ramon jumps at the opportunity because they are also prioritizing trying to get back to the moon. Unfortunately, the reasons to get back to the moon are a little bit less than ideal. Buckley, the billionaire, somewhat of a pretentious joke, son of Janus CEO and billionaire Mason Cordell, uh, Buckley has really kind of put this whole thing together because he really wants to be the first person on the moon in 50 years, probably for TikTok. You know, the dream of a billionaire son who can never escape his overbearing father's shadow. But for Ramon, going to the moon is going to the moon. And so he jumps at the opportunity. Unfortunately, when issue one picks up, this mission has not worked out. It's now six weeks later, the astronauts, the four-person crew, including Buckley, Ramon, Addison, Mission Commander Addison, and Specialist Glenn, have all been in isolation back at Janus for about six weeks because during their translunar injection, which would have been the path that the maneuver that then sets them on their path to the moon, something went very wrong. And there are seven minutes missing from all instruments, from all live feeds, from the astronauts' memory as well. They were all blacked out. Ramon came to first, was able to get them back on course and get them back in contact with mission control and ultimately to get them back home. But he didn't come home the same way as he left. And as we discover in issue one amidst the big media attention, the press, the speculation on what happened, who Buckley's dating, is he okay? Ramon starts to realize that something about him is different. And that manifests throughout the first issue as a form of an almost kind of gravity manipulating ability. And you're going to see that as the book goes on. So I would say that's basically the setup of this world and the story as Ramon and the book really look to explore the responsibility that must come with having power in the world and how much one person should or can be expected to do. There's the constant demand from others, the attention, the spotlight that would be there on any of your missteps. I've comped in the past what we're trying to do with Moon Man to Miracle Man, the very seminal Alan Moore work from the 1980s with Gary Leach and others. Miracle Man was kind of, along with Squadron Supreme by Mark Grunewald, was really a game changer with regards to exploring, well, if superheroes were to exist in the world or more specifically superpowers, this is what would happen to the world. By introducing power into the world, you then explore how the world changes. So if Miracle Man is asking if there was a superhero, what would happen in the world? Moon Man is asking if you were a superhero, what would happen to you? So this is something that is looking at a much more, I would say, kind of humanistic take on the genre for the 2020s that is also incredibly grounded in a world that is very much the world outside your window. And that's kind of our launching pad for what we hope will be a very I mean, Karina, it sounds a very long-running series. I, I feel like Kyle verbed it so beautifully, but when Scott and Kyle and all of us were starting to contemplate how does a hero operate in this moment, there really is like a, a feeling of, I guess let's put it this way, the kind of golden age of heroes, we were starting to see circumstances where people would come into power and they would be thrust into a circumstance of trying to make the world better, trying to save the world. The good versus evil, good would always triumph. If Superman didn't have kryptonite, he would always be Superman. Like that that feeling of almost like Americana triumph, the great forces. Whereas with Moon Man, we're really dealing with somebody who doesn't necessarily want that or didn't ask for that. Or he had his own ambitions and his own dreams. And it was this little thing that he held on to, his version of the American dream, which was going to the moon. But all of a sudden, there's all of these implications based on the things that are happening to him. But also, even if he acts upon these skills that he's been given, there are going to be repercussions. So if he saves one, does that mean that he let another die? And where does that leave Moon Man? Or if he moves here, does that mean somebody moves backward? Or even if he uses gravity powers, what are the implications of what happens as a result physically by moving gravity to the atmosphere around it? So Moon Man is a hero with consequences. And that then makes it a very human, as Kyle says, like the humanist version of a hero where he's trying to grapple with 
what are the things that fulfill himself and what are the things that also help others if one person or multiple or even just this instance that's very, very reactive. And I think we should say how that's built out this kind of these inner conflicts by the artists Marco Locati and Iger Monti. Yeah, well, it's my favorite part of making comics, which is putting the team together that you're ultimately going to go on this creative journey and quest with. In some ways, it's kind of like cooking or, or filmmaking where you're looking for these different flavors. Scott and I have talked about this from a musical standpoint as well. It's like working with a different producer. Like you get different sounds from different people in that regard. Well, putting a team together on a book is, is similar. I knew I wanted someone on the interior art who had a little bit of a funkier style. Marco came to my attention through Daniele Di Nicolo, who I worked with on Power Rangers uh, for many years and work in the Massiverse with from time to time. I think Marco came out of Daniele's studio. Marco is an artist that has very, very big things in front of him. It's rare to find someone who is newer and is as refined as Marco is, both as a storyteller, but also as a designer. And I would say like as a visual world builder. So much of this working comes down to you feel as a reader connected to the characters and the places that we're exploring. And Marco has basically just gone all in on this with me and has built out this incredible kind of visual tapestry for this world and how all these different elements and parties kind of fit together in ways that are recognizable and unique and then are aided and added to by Igor Monti, who is just an exceptional working in comics today. Igor and I work together quite a bit in the Massiverse on Radiant Black and Inferno Girl Red. Igor also colors a big comic book series that I do with my co-writing partner, Joe Clark, and a list of artists that explore 60 years of kind of history and storytelling in jazz. So we have this historical fiction series called Deep Cuts, where each issue takes place. It's a 48-page novella, takes place in a different decade, and it spans from 1917 New Orleans through the 1970s. And each issue is a different artist, and Igor colors each issue in a different style. So that flexibility and the boldness in Igor's palettes and his rendering, I felt like that married with Marco's line art would create a little bit more dimension in the line art and a little bit more volume without taking into the territory of being like overly rendered, that it feels a little, it helps feel it a little grittier, grounded while still having these bright colors. In particular, as the cosmic is intruding on Ramon's life, the palettes that Igor chooses reflect that as well. So the world tends to be a little bit more monochromatic by design, because again, as the cosmic intrudes, and starts to not only empower, but take over uh, Ramon's life, you will start to see the palette shift and you'll start to see some of these explosions of color that actually are already in issue one, evident in issue one, I should say. That's all then added to by Hassan Otsmani Allahu, who is our incredible Eisner award-winning letterer, doing all the balloons, doing all of the, the dialogue placement, finding a style for that lettering that complements the art, doesn't distract from it, but also feels like it was intended from the get-go to fit together is what Hassan is best at. It's also great from the standpoint of helping me and Marco to convey emotion. Sometimes there are things that are tricky for us to do in a silent medium, and the personality that Hassan is able to find and infuse his balloon styles with can oftentimes convey that feeling in a way that I don't get from a lot of other letterers. So that's kind of the core creative team. With two more people I do want to mention, Michael Pasudel, who is our ringleader. He's my right hand at Black Market Narrative, which is our little creative collective studio that we do all our books through. Michael edits and designs everything on Moon Man. All the logo, all the interior design work, the cover dress, that's all Michael. And Chase Conley, the incredible animation director, he's I believe wrapping up on X-Men 97 right now, the big X-Men animated series revival that'll be out on Disney Plus, I think this year sometime. Chase has been on it for like over two years at this point. Chase was our first choice to actually design the looks of Moon Man. We wanted something, again, with a different feel from what traditional superhero comics are doing. 
We wanted more style. And, you know, it's Kid Cudi. Like, it's got to be unique. And fortunately, Chase just absolutely knocked it out of the park. And that's just the first suit that everyone has seen. So, so yeah, it's our little band. I got to jump on this because Kyle hit so many keywords. You hit funky, bold, style. I mean, it, it's really interesting when putting, and he referenced kind of Scott, what he represents, his brand and all of it. But when you put Scott's brain into the idea of creating this character, there was a lot of specificity that he had. He described him, he's a maverick. He feels like he's like a Top Gun character. He's the guy who pilots the ship and he's the coolest one in the room. I mean, we we almost did we're likening him to the Han Solo version of piloting a spacecraft. Like there's energy and interest and cool that emanates from him. And part of that cool was inherent in his style. Like he's fashionable. His dialogue is fresh. His really like his relationships are exciting. There's something really attractive and very familiar about Ramon as the guy that you would want to hang with and be friends with and the one who makes life a little bit more exciting. And I feel like in Kyle amassing sort of this almost like team of Avengers who put this comic book together, that thematic has come through in the partnership of everybody. I feel like in the same breath, Marco is pushing his art forward to capture who Ramon is and what he feels like. You're getting the playfulness of Igor's colors to balance that out. And to compliment Chase Conley further, the suit that you see on the cover and in issue one, we call it his vigilante suit, the suit that he pulled out of his closet to take to dawn to the riots to try and protect his identity. That was the first design Chase did. It was something I never could have even imagined in my life was the first thing that he did in the final thing. But what's been really interesting as it evolved is that you'll notice on the cover the t-shirt that Moon Man is wearing has a Nirvana logo on it. And part of the thinking Scott had is if it was me and I was pulling a look out of my closet, who's to say I'm going to wear the same t-shirt every time? Like, why does a superhero have to have abject consistency with their wardrobe when it's not the finished suit, the final product where there's a reason for, there's like a, a kind of a tactical reason for why it's created that way. But the thing that I pulled out of my closet, you're going to tell me I'm never going to change the item. What if it gets dirty? What if I need a wash? I'm going to wait for it to come out of the washing machine before I don another shirt. So that sensibility, which Scott mentions it, it's like, oh man, that feels so fresh, but really it's so, it's just so inherent in him being this man of the world and bringing that sensibility and style into these characters. Yeah. And then what got him really excited is when we describe it as like the shirt could be the sneakers of his outfit. Like it can change. Yeah. yeah. It's a big deal when Spider-Man changes a costume or Superman changes the costume. You don't typically see like micro changes in them like doing it themselves. But in this instance, it's a feature, not a bug. So, and real quick, the other thing, me, I just wanted to jump back on from your question with regards to the, how we are exploring some of this thematic material that we're talking about. Certainly the creative team is helping us to do this, but also the different points of view that are in the book. So predominantly right now, the the kind of like the two main points of view are between Ramon, who is late thirties, early forties, somewhere in that ballpark. And his younger brother, Micah, who's in his early 20s. And there's very much a generational divide between the two. But as readers can probably pick up by the end of the issue, some of what Micah is feeling and verbalizing, Ramon doesn't necessarily think the world is unfortunately quite that simple. And this push and pull between the two brothers as they discuss a lot of the challenges that a company like Janus is introducing not only to Cleveland, but to the country, much less the space fair, much less everything else that they're doing and trying to own and control. That really is kind of at the core of this story of growth and self-discovery that Ramon is on in these first few arcs. So it's it's something that um, we're all excited by. And I got to say, Mike is a lot of fun to write. Um, as someone who's going to be 40 in like a year and a half, like suddenly to realize like, oh, I'm, yeah, I'm old. And there are all these kids that I didn't, they weren't even alive when I was in college is I know everyone goes through this experience as a human being, but it's very much at kind of like the forefront of who Ramon and Moon Man may ultimately end up being. And you, of course, reflecting then on your younger self, kind of like lessons for the next generation. And you've touched on your own inspiration from jazz, but we haven't really discussed the whole music soundtrack 
Yes, yes. Well, so th- so for those who don't know, there's some Moon Man number one cover, and it's for something called the soundtrack uh, of Moon Man. The soundtrack of Moon Man is what it sounds like. Scott is doing new music. It's not going to be for every issue, but he's doing new tracks that kind of are spiritual kind of accompaniment tracks to issues of Moon Man, to, to the first arc here in particular. And the first track just released called Black Ops featuring Denzel Curry. It's out on streaming platforms everywhere now. It's also uh, available at moonmancomic.com. And it really just comes down to, in this day and age, trying to create a little bit of magic and what that feeling is to get excited about something and to want to invest in a story in a world and a universe. And for me and, and for Scott as well, trying to tap into that and give people reasons to get excited and reasons to feel like this is something worth investing their time and energy into is incredibly important for us. What's super cool about Moon Man and to have a sonic component that lives in Kid Cudi being an artist of hip hop, but also an artist of vulnerability is hyper reflective of what the comic is. So it's A, impossible not to want those two things to exist together. As Kyle says, like you want music to support Moon Man when Kid Cudi is the creator of both. But what's really exciting is that I feel like the music is, in addition to the visuals and all these components that we've discussed, the style, et cetera, is another thing that unlocks what Moon Man is supposed to feel like. Yeah, it's so fascinating, this immersive storytelling. And as we were discussing a bit before the start of this conversation, the whole storytelling scene is undergoing a transformation. You know, OpenAI has just stunned the blogosphere with the release of Sora, a new AI model that generates videos in high fidelity. We've seen video generators before, but Sora seems to have an understanding of time and physics, which enables it to create not only more coherent videos than previous video generators, but also 3D worlds. So big changes. And and you can type anything in and it will create it within seconds. Like it looks so clear and lifelike. So I'm wondering what your thoughts are on one, the copyright challenges and the ethics of AI and the changing role of the artist in the digital age. As you say that there, and this will probably allude to some of my larger feelings, although they, my feelings about AI are probably a little bit more nuanced than how this is going to sound. You know, I write science fiction. It's fascinating. It's fascinating from a technological standpoint, but we have dozens and dozens of years of science fiction warning us about technology unchecked. The irony is that now so many of those science fiction stories have probably been used to feed the AI training algorithms that they are now repurposing and ripping off. So it's very ironic in that regard to me. But as you say, like you can sit there and type it in and then it, it comes up. I would actually argue that you're not making anything. I've, I've heard artists refer to it as a plagiarism machine. And I do think in this day and age at this point, that's a very apt descriptor. You know, that idea of like, sit down, type a prompt, you have a story or you have a piece of air quotes art is the same energy as when people come up to you at a convention or a writer and they're like, hey, I have this idea and they tell you their idea and they're like, so you go write it and we'll split the money. Because to them, the idea is the product when in reality, anyone who does this knows that the idea is worthless. The only thing that matters with an idea is the execution, how you explore it, what you're trying to say with it. Again, I think it's fascinating from a technological standpoint, but from a good of the arts standpoint, from a moral standpoint, and at this stage, I could not be more opposed to it. It's interesting. I've had a little bit of a different way into AI than I think the very outward facing conversation is, which I very much agree with. Like the deep fakes are wildly scary. There's a lot of stuff that's happening right now that's utterly terrifying. And the fact that there isn't some sort of like asterisk, set your resources, this is AI generated, just so there's no confusion when it's somebody's likeness at stake. There's things that are just, there have to be corrections to. But I will say what I did find particularly interesting, the first time I was ever exposed to AI was with this artist, Jaron Braxton, and we're developing his feature slime. He's outrageously gifted. I mean, this guy, his whole backstory is so fascinating. He basically came up as a kid, made music, wanted to create cool music videos, self-taught himself animation. His animation blew up. He wins Sundance with his first short, goes to the festivals every year since, but then he's part of hype culture, designing for Virgil Abloh or 
His artwork is featured in Christie's auctions with Takashi Murakami, and he's just a hype artist. And the first time I was ever exposed to AI is as we were building out his feature idea, and he was showing me different renderings and things that he was playing with. But the way the application actually ended up becoming practical was that you've got this guy with a concept for a very like adult facing sonically driven visually arresting weird out there monster film where if you went to a traditional studio right now where animation has gone hyper broad four quadrant safe because it's generally expensive takes hundreds of people around the world and you know (laughs) an immense amount of time to accomplish the product he's sitting there and trying to see how how do i get my movie made And essentially, by virtue of using technology, is able to do it at an indie budget. Not to say that means that he's living inside of AI, but kind of a comp example would be, I need to create slime and fluid simulation for the monster character, which is going to take an immense amount of time. I could either sit there for days rendering out different aesthetics for how this slime could look. Or I can embed my art in AI, get some renderings, and just use it as a source of inspiration to take me in the right direction to where I'm trying to go. And that intermediary step allows somebody like him to get an indie financier to be able to afford the film. So I would say that my sort of, my kind of like moral feeling about AI is very similar to what Kyle presented. But I do also agree with like kind of the former point that Kyle was starting with is that technology in its own operation is not the problem. It's the reaction and how do we use that technology that becomes the problem. So I'd piggyback on that a little bit. I actually do think the technology is a problem because of the way that it is introduced and rolled out. And this is now, we live in a day and age where that mantra about like disrupt and break things and ask questions later, like that has... You know how many scooters I trip over in Los Angeles walking down the block? Okay. No one asked for these. You know, these companies came in, disrupted the status quo. If you're Uber, you're coming in, you're coming in with VC money, you're cutting competition, driving prices down, and then you get to jack prices up when you are in the driver's seat. Okay. Same thing in in this instance. Stable diffusion comes out, opening at chat GPT comes out. Well, now the genie's out of the bottle. Well, the technology is not the problem. No, the people that introduced it with no regard for copyright, for ownership, for any of the tenants that make it viable as an artist or creator to not only work, but also incentive to get into this line of work in the first place. Basically gutted all that and strip mine the future for short-term profits and gains, an explosion in venture capital money. And there's a reason Getty Images has a lawsuit against you. There's a reason the New York Times is suing you. Like, The idea of coming in and just, like I said, I do have feelings about it. I have a lot of friends who are affected by this. This is an industry that Karina and I work in that is going through stuff right now and trying to find its path in all of this. And at the end of the day, you know, if we can make it easier and cheaper to capture some aspect of the human spirit, and then by gone, isn't that best for shareholders? That's how it feels. So it's something that I definitely have cynicism towards, especially when it comes down to anything in the arts. And I understand that the arts are commercial. That's just where we are. But, you know, there are a lot of problems in the world that would be great to focus on and trying to find actual solutions for. And basically, essentially legislating out creativity, that to me is not a problem that needed to be addressed. And like, Karina, your example is great. And at the end there, it sounds like what you flagged was that this is an artist that's training an algorithm on his own work. Is that a fair? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 100%. Because otherwise you're going out there and you're generating, air quotes again, uh, generating images, prompts, whatever, to then go set up your indie film or to then go and do all this. No, prop- I, I, I 100% agree on that, Kyle. It's because, and I've seen it. I've seen people who market themselves as AI artists. So you're seeing full films that are made out of AI. And it's not to say that there there isn't something that they're creating because- But I exactly understand what you're saying. For me, what it boils down to is like, just because it's your dream doesn't mean you're entitled to a career doing it. If you're using tools that are exploiting people that have actually spent time honing, refining and building their craft, you're not benefiting yourself. You're not benefiting your project and you're not benefiting the larger community 
or even industry that makes this sustainable in any meaningful way going forward in a way that actually will attract people to still come and want to make movies. I mean, we've basically, this is a whole other conversation, but it's the same mindset I feel as looking at the vertical integration of streamers and this whole like two plus two equals five bad math that we've been chasing. We've essentially self-immolated as an industry just to essentially recreate cable is where we're heading. Yeah, And a lot of people made a lot of money. But now, if I were advising someone starting out, or, or I just saw some kids from, from film school the other day, they teach content now. They don't teach directing. Everything's content. And if I were going to advise a teenager going into the arts now to go to college or to try to build a career, I wouldn't even know where to start because it doesn't really feel like it's super viable um, or sustainable in a lot of ways going forward, unless we really take a cold, hard look at what we're doing here, what shortcuts we are willing to take, and whether there's going to be any regulation coming in these industries before it's too late. Well, I'll say too, the, the goalposts change constantly. So from the introduction of Netflix to then streamer wars to, I would argue, in addition to the strike, probably the biggest event that happened last year was the Netflix subscriber drop because what happens, their subscribers go down. Every streamer now reacts by saying, we're going to go broad and safe. But in the meantime, there's a strike going on. So any indie studio where you would get more of the invention is essentially out in payroll, but not making any product. Before that, Cost Plus wasn't adding up to the same thing. So where are those indie studios going to go to survive? Either they went under, they made it through, or they're going to go incredibly safe because what else would your reaction be? And all of a sudden, over the course of one year, the pendulum has swung all the way over to broad and safe from everyone because that's exactly what we need to show to Wall Street and what we need just for our company to survive. And I think the fact that you're right, it's like if, if I was teaching for today, hey, what's your four quadrant content that you can build out to make it through this moment? But by the time you've got that thing developed out, the pendulum probably swung in a different direction. And you're, the thing that you've created is passe. We bought all of the broad things that we need. We don't need another one of those projects. I have X, Y, Z. I mean, it's just like a constant shift in the goalpost. I think in terms of reaction to that and this very much led from scott's interest was let's get broad and not broad content broad horizontals in terms of the types of content that we want to create so let's create a comic book with kyle higgins let's we've got the film and tv but he then creates music or he's going to go to create members of the rage and do fashion or a memoir all of these you know let's get into gaming the further that we can widen out the industries that we're interested in and can participate in, I think, A, that means the more sort of inspiring the artists that you attract because you're able to live with people who whose minds expand directionally and you have a skill set that can support the things that you're looking to do. But also, I think the greatest protection it offers you in this like very fluctuating multi-industry that's existing right now. And those are all great points. And the other thing, which is the the true cost, because you're talking about with the themes of the environment and what we're doing with the limited resources. Oh yeah, AI is not only scraping the human resources. I hate these terms, human resources, but yes, the creative resources. <laughs> but we don't have no idea how much energy it's using. They've not been. They're not accountable. Well, that's what I was going to say. Actually, I know how intensive graphics rendering is. It's like I I used to work in visual effects. Like I understand that world. I'd be really curious to see what the energy expenditure is like kind of in totality of all this prompting. And Sam Altman just came out, what, last week and said, there needs to be an energy breakthrough for artificial intelligence to really have a viable path forward. But even he, the CEO of OpenAI, is acknowledging nothing's free. There is a cost here. And similar to crypto in the sense of exciting unknown for a lot of people, but nothing's free. And I'm super curious to see how this this shakes out on that front as well, Mia. I also think part of the problem, and you brought this up in the part of our conversation about Moon Man. So the feeling that we've essentially been priced out of the life that we were supposed to lead. So we were all taught, put your head down, go to school, get a job. You're going to afford a family, a house, Kids, all the things that your parents had, you're going to have if you just follow the same path. 
But now we're all in this circumstance where we're priced out. Inflation has none of the things that we're promised has a path. So I don't blame the next generation for looking desperately, for looking to crypto, for looking to AI, for looking to TikTok, for looking to all of these circumstances as how can I get the lifestyle? And granted, social media has very like negatively impacted what we think the lifestyle should be. It's not kind of that holistic middle America, Americana kind of like version of life. It is we live to the luscious or else we're not living. So that's kind of another component of it. But I think the status quo and the standards are not up to snuff. So you've got a reaction of collective majority who grew up on technology and has no problem living inside of it saying, hey, can this thing save me? Like, can I find my out if I create a quick fix by operating on behalf of a moment? And those regulations to them come later. Yeah, that's a that's a fantastic point. I also think like then putting it through an art standpoint when you're yeah. Starting out when you're that age as well, you wear your influences on your sleeve. Some people wear them kind of forever, but hopefully you wear them for however long it takes you to find your voice. I feel similarly about something like this as I do with physical media versus streaming. When you dilute down the pool of influence, like there's a massive, massive pool of data that they are pulling from because where do they get it from? We know they've scraped the internet. They've done all of these things, but it still is this finite pool of influence and you're not getting anything out of it that hasn't been put in. And, you know, I think about, I remember when Filmstruck shut down, that was a streaming platform a few years ago before Criterion Channel then launched. There was a, a big conversation about just the nature of us turning over our curation and libraries to the streaming gods. And I think about when I was at, I went to Chapman University, uh, Karina did as well, actually, for film production. And when movies were assigned to talk about or to watch, the movies that were picked were movies that you could get access to, that the professors had access to. And sometimes I meant as a student, you're going to the library and you're checking out the DVD. When all of that goes away and now you're only, you're teaching from films that, that are accessible and you're basically teaching from a smaller and smaller pool of influence and resources. Because from every generation of home video, for example, or even before that, go to film prints, not every film made the jump from celluloid to VHS. Not every film made the jump from VHS to DVD, from DVD to Blu-ray, from Blu-ray to 4K. At every step of that, there are fewer titles that are being that have been released than the format prior. At a certain point now, again, when you've dwindled that down to the same, you know, take an extreme example, the same 20 movies, because that's the only thing that's accessible, everyone's getting taught the same thing, and you're just homogenizing the end result much in the way that all of the AI imagery that you see out there, the, it, it's, it's the same shit. And I just don't know who it's benefiting. I really don't, other than the companies that create the business model and the subscription tiers on the backs of other people's work that are then able to have their data farms return back a, in my opinion, shit image for a couple sentences of text. I, I, I will say I love that conversation because I think it's impossible to create for a market because the market doesn't exist. Whatever you're dealing with today won't exist tomorrow. So there's no kind of, you almost have to ignore what the industry standards are. And therefore, what's the reaction? What are you left with is I want to create authentically to myself in this moment, to the art form that feels right to me. And, and to tie this all back to Moon Man, that was very much Scott's perspective and my perspective going into this, which led to us meeting Kyle, which was we're fans of, we've never done a comic before. We've read them. We've never created one. So if we're going to do this thing authentically, we need the shepherd, the person who is a giant in the industry who understands it better than anyone who will grab our hands and take us through this entire process and build this thing into what we'd hope it would be, which is something that comic fans would look at and say, this is the truest, purest form of the medium that I love. And that was very much due to Kyle. And I'll, I'll say too, because there's some really sweet stories. If we had Scott on, you'd get to hear their, I wouldn't even have to talk. You just hear, they've become like the brotherhood, so endearing getting to watch the two of them kind of 
share ideas off of one another and their mutual fandoms and things that have inspired them. But part of the thing that we've so appreciated from Kyle too is that ideas that we have for the world that we know, you, you present to Kyle and Kyle will sift through the entire encyclopedia of comics to make sure that it feels new. And Kyle knows the story because one of my favorites was that as Scott was talking about the powers for Moon Man, he was like, okay, I want him to fly. I want him to be bulletproof. I want him to be super strong. I want him to shoot laser beams out of his eyes. And you start going through this and you're like, oh my God, this guy's going to be just an overpowered hero. Like, were we redoing Superman? Like, what is his kryptonite if we're going to give him all of this? And Kyle took in all of those thoughts and then came up with the idea that he could manipulate the gravity around him. Not in Firstly, because, okay, well, if he's super strong, he lessens the gravity and the impact hits harder. Or if he can float gravity or even laser beams down, it could be push gravity out if we want to embed that in. So the sort of like cohesive thought is something that is very tangible with a lot of implications as to how far it could grow. It also obviously feels very appropriate as a mission to the moon gone wrong that the power would come from that source. But also the other sort of impact, which I really loved that Kyle suggested, because it very much suits the thematic that we're talking about. We mentioned this earlier, is gravity, you manipulate gravity around you that will then have an impact around it. So this sort of concept that your heroics are not in a vacuum, but there's going to be implications for it. And how do you weigh what is best when everything turns a corner is really the most sort of like modern take on heroics. So all this to tie into the authenticity that Kyle opened up and unlocked as we entered into this journey with him. Appreciate that. I would not say I know every comic, but at all, <laughs> um, not even close, but I, yeah, that's what you're talking about in particular though, with the powers though, Karina, it, what's I think is so cool is like, as, as you say, the marriage between concept and theme and what you're able to use from that marriage to say, or how you're able to use that marriage to say something about what we're exploring is like, that's what it's all about for me. And this came out of a conversation with Michael Basudel and I talking about these gravity abilities. And, you know, I, the book I've mentioned before, I do Radiant Black, one of the characters in there manipulates gravity. So you're always trying to make sure you're not doing the same thing that you've done before. And Michael and I realized like, well, building it from the standpoint of an equal and opposite reaction is not only a tenant of physics, but I think it's a tenant of what we're talking about, introducing power into the world and then seeing how the world responds. Equal and opposite reaction has to go somewhere. Ramon can't do what he does without having an effect on the world. Just like everything we've talked about today, whether it's technology <laughs> or it's AI or it's anything, it's art, so much of what you're creating is, it, it, it really isn't in a vacuum. I mean, I would argue that in so many ways, you know, for art is the effect that the finished piece elicits on its viewers, its readers, its listeners. It's the relationship between the connoisseur, the viewer, or the listener. It's about them bringing what they're bringing to the party and what, and by party, I mean life, and what that piece or that expression of humanity what that is inciting in them, what it, what that is resonating with in them. And to me, that's, at the end of the day, that that's the most kind of pure form of what we're talking about here as far as the world having an effect on you and you having an effect on the world. Yes. And we didn't really talk about what started you on this journey and who were those teachers who inspired you and really helped you find your own way because you have to also find your own way, but just opened your eyes to this. Well, I have to start with my dad. You know, I grew up in the Chicago suburbs. My dad worked in manufacturing in the paint and coatings industry for 45 years, but he was also a photographer. And so I grew up around cameras and he has this massive love of music and a physical music collection that would leave a lot of jaws on the floor. I mean, he's been buying CDs since the day the CD was released in the 80s. And before that, he was buying vinyl going back to just after he got out of Vietnam. And so it is this library of thousands of albums that span genre and, and categories. And I grew up with that and this just being exposed to so much musically. And then I, I'm a huge jazz fan and nerd. 
and I started playing the trumpet when I was about 10 years old and I played until I was about 25. And so there's the music side, but then while that's going on, there was the, the only reason I stopped is because the other thing I did from the time I was about eight or nine years old was I was making movies with my sister and my dad on, on a video camera. And it is something that I guess I look back and, you know, I feel very fortunate to have a, had a very supportive family that never pushed anything on me as far as the things I was interested in. But storytelling is something that I fell in love with from kind of a very early age. And it's something that looking back, I've kind of done my whole life, even if I never considered it writing for a lot of that. I would always write stuff. So I would have little material to direct is how I would frame it. And then in college, when I got out to Southern California and I went to chat and I transferred to Chapman for film school back in like 2005, I came out here. I made a big college thesis film. It was kind of a, both a love letter to the types of movies that I loved, but also a mission statement and what I thought I could maybe bring to the table and do going forward. It was a big superhero noir, the 1960s superhero labor union in Chicago. It was called The League, shot entirely on super 16 millimeter film, tons of visual effects, tons of wire work, tons of locations, big original bebop score that one of my now frequent co-writers, Joe Clark, actually wrote when he was at DePaul University. We grew up playing jazz bands together in Illinois. And then he recorded this original score I mean, keep in mind, we were like 22 doing all this. And this was like 2008 when we finished. So we graduated into just the perfect time in the world from a recession and housing market catastrophe standpoint. But one of the things that happened over that first year was the editor-in-chief of Marvel Comics, Joe Casada, saw the film because I put it online and reached out to me. And so I started pitching to Marvel and landed an issue of Captain America like a year later. I was like 24, something like that. And then all of a sudden you blink and you've been doing it for a decade and you've written all your favorite characters. And it just feels through the ups and downs, feels incredibly fortunate. You feel incredibly fortunate and grateful, but also like it's time to find something new. And so that's where the universe that We've built at Image Comics. The Massiverse comes from. It's where Moon Man comes from. It, there's some other stuff we're doing now uh, that hasn't been announced yet. It's where all of those projects come from. And it, it's something that when I talk about like influences and mentors, I find myself really attracted to singular artists and people that no matter the industry kind of went and did it their way not as a fuck you necessarily to the status quo or the established you know, industry or norms, but often because they understand them and, and now know how to iterate outside of them. And so like, I'm actually sitting here at my desk next to me. I have the first Superman film, the 1978 Superman film from Richard Donner starring Christopher Reeve. I have a poster next to my desk here that was given to me by Tom Mankiewicz, who was credited as a creative consultant on that movie, but he, I mean, he really wrote it. Tom was my mentor when I was at Chapman. And at the time, it was a different era with regards to superheroes. The Dark Knight hadn't come out yet. The first Iron Man movie hadn't come out yet. So the fact that I was trying to do this big, ambitious, essentially superhero movie, very dressed up, very, again, I call it a superhero noir, and it's a period film, it still had superheroes in it. And it wasn't supported by everyone in the administration at Chapman. I'll put it that way. But Tom Mankiewicz could not have been more supportive. And I had met Tom because I interned for Richard Donner. And when I was really in the thick of it on this movie, and it was the 11th hour, Beyond Broke would be the way to put it. And there were problems with the film and we're all burnt out and had been going for over a year and exhausted and we don't know how to do this. And keep in mind, we're kids trying to figure out how to tell stories consistently, much less tell something at this scale. And I showed Tom a cut of the movie. And despite the problems that were there, like a surgeon or the script doctor that he was so renowned to be, he pointed, he goes, boom, these three moments. He's like, you just need, you know, a shot of this. They're pickup shots at most. And I'm sitting there going, there's, they're not going to let me shoot anything more. Like there's no way humanly possible. And he goes, well, well if they did, like, what would it cost? And I was like, I don't know, Tom, I have nothing. Like, I can't finish this thing, much less figure out how to shoot more on film in this amount of time. I said, maybe I could probably do it for like $300. And that seemed like such a huge number to me. And Tom pulled out a money clip and just peeled off $100 bills and he gave them to me. And he said, 
how else am I going to see the finished movie? And so it's going to make me cry, actually. <laughs> I haven't thought about this in a while. When my first issue of Captain America came out, that was probably at that point, it was probably two years later. I went and I had lunch with Tom. It was actually the last time I saw him before he passed away. And we set, we went and met at the Palm when it was on Santa Monica, Karina. So this yeah. is obviously years ago. It was about 2010 now. It's probably spring of 2010. And the, the book had come out and I had it and I wanted to write something to him and I couldn't figure out what to write. And I was working at the time at, at Sound Deluxe as a, as a sound editor. And I sat at my desk for probably a solid like hour and a half before this lunch, figuring out what the hell am I going to write? And I finally came up with something. I was so, so proud. It was to Tom. Thank you for showing me how writing can change the world or at least turn it backwards. And so I gave it to him and I'm sitting there and I'm watching him read this and he's looking at it. And he's looking at it and I'm realizing, well, I don't know. Does he get because it's the end of Superman. That's where that you know, turning the world backwards. And, like, <laughs> and I go, I finally can't help myself. And I'm like, well, you know, because the end of Superman, and he looks at me, he goes, oh, I know. And about four months later is when I got the call that he passed away. And the poster that I had from him that he had given me after I finished the league at Chapman, I then reached out to Dick Donner and asked if he would sign it for me. Just because I never had Tom sign it, I never asked. I'm not that kind of person, but I asked. And so this was a long walk to the point, which is that on the poster sitting next to me is Kyle, hope to sign your DGA card, Richard Dick Donner, which as a 20-some-year-old who just wants to do nothing but direct movies for the rest of their life, I mean, that is like mana from the gods. And so that type of encouragement, that type of believing in you, even if you're not seeing it, but also... Yeah, it's just all of that is is was very, very informative and important for me. And it's something that I try to carry forward now as I'm working with new writers or younger writers, I should say, or younger artists. And it was just in, it, incredibly influential. If you don't know anyone listening to this, if you don't know much about Dick Donner, please do some Googling. Just a really, really incredible, remarkable man. And they don't make them like him anymore. I didn't know him, but my first job was actually at Small World, was working for Alexander Sulkin at the end of his life, him and Berta. And oh my gosh, what a very small world. Were you in LA for any No, of that? that was in Paris. So, you know, yeah, but writing screenplays that didn't get made, but yeah. very strange. When did Alexander pass away? The end of the 90s. And Ilya was his son? Yes, I didn't know Ilya so much. I mean, people would drift in and out. Look, it's public. Like Donner and the Salkinds didn't like each other. They fired Donner off Superman after the first movie was a mega hit. And despite Donner having shot over 50% of the second Superman already, they fired him and then brought in Richard Lester to finish the movie and reshot a lot of those Donner filmed scenes so that they didn't have to give Donner directing credit. Per DGA rules, you can't have two directors credited on a film, and the director credited has to have shot over a certain percentage, I believe. So in 20, 2007, I was interning at the Donners. No, this would be 06. I was interning at the Donners. Superman Returns hadn't come out yet, but there was a lot of buzz around it because it had filmed or was filming and was so much of a kind of like love letter to the Donner Superman film. But they also, through the production of that film, raised the money or un unfroze the money from Warner Brothers to let Dick go finish a cut of Superman 2 of like using a lot of footage that no one had ever seen before, including all of this extra footage with Marlon Brando, because the second Superman film was very much intended to be the continuation of this story about a father and a son and the father sacrificing himself for the son. And it's beautiful. If you haven't seen the Donner cut, please go check it out. So they finished this cut of the movie and they had this whole screening at the DGA. And I grew up watching all the behind the scenes features on the first Superman film. I knew all of these stories, like all this drama. That night, the fact that I was even able to get to the DGA from Orange County, like they told me at the last minute, okay, you can come. I blew off class. I sat in two hours of traffic up to LA. I did this whole thing. I drove to the internship that night. I slept in my car so I would be in the office at 9 a.m. And the reason I bring it up is because sitting next to me during the screening, having a grand time was this older gentleman that 
I couldn't place initially. And then when they did the Q&A, he, it was at Ilya Salkind. And he was just like, he was taking it in stride, but it wasn't super comfortable. And it was like, we were all kind of wondering, it's like, why are you, why would you come? Like, this is a weird evening to, to come to. But to his credit, Donner and Mank knew he was there and they traded a few barbs. It was all kind of in good spirits, but it was like this. That's why I was wondering which, what era, because if you were, happened to be at that screening, I was going to ask you if you, if you remember this, but. But yeah. Yeah, it was around 94, 95. I used to visit Alex and Berta on the quay overlooking the River Seine. And Berta had rooms full of her brother's ponchos paintings. And she and Alex were still working on screenplays. And I've been told that Alexander liked to work on two movies at the same time, but didn't always tell the actors they were, in fact, filming two movies. So I'd heard that as a consequence, they now have a Sulkin's clause to prevent that from happening again. But that was a long time ago now. Wow. And Karina, you had shared some of your inspiration last time you were on the show, but just tell us a little bit about those inspiring figures in your life. Yeah. It's funny because Kyle started with his dad, and I feel like I'd be remiss in this circumstance not to start with my parents, too. So growing up, it's interesting. My parents are not in the industry. My dad is uh, happy Rocky, happy Iranian Jew from Iran. He has a furniture showroom where he designs furniture in Italy and Spain. My mom is an Iraqi Jew born in Indonesia. Both of them uh, met in LA, though in history, like their families were connected back in Iran. So there was familiarity in terms of them coming together. But my sort of inspiration into movies was this combination of my mom showing me Gone with the Winds and Breakfast at Tiffany's and, you know, all of the kind of like female fair and my dad showing me the deer hunter and you know American psycho and all of like the male fair and I felt like I had like these sort of two parallel experiences getting into it but the reason why I ended up going to film school was because my sister was starting to think about what she wanted to do for college and I was I think I was I must have been a freshman in high school at this point and she was talking she's a year older than me I didn't really know what I wanted to do and I was like I don't know what I'd pick my mom goes, well, what do you like? I'm like, oh, I like my English classes. I love my theater classes. Like I live in that side of my brain. And she goes, well, why don't you take a video class? So my sophomore year I did. And I remember there was a movie that I poured my heart and soul into. I wrote and I rewrote the script. I cast all of my theater friends in it. It truly was the worst movie ever. I like, I kid you not. I was at that phase where my dad was like embedding me with Martin Scorsese. So every movie I did had to have a gun and we were gangsters. Like it was, and I feel like every aspiring filmmaker goes through that moment. It was atrocious. But there was this one part we're shooting in my garage and I'm behind the camera and I'm like, oh, I like this more than that. So I like being behind the camera more than in front of it. And that was the trigger that I was going to go to film school. And as we discussed in our last conversation, Harry Upland, similar to Kyle, there was a professor who sort of paved the way for me. My path up made me realize that the producing component of it was my happier place. I, I love to live in conversations. The creativity is beautiful, but I never felt like I quite excelled naturally as much as the producing in terms of supporting a vision that I believed in. And uh, as I was interning at production companies, I wanted a broader experience. And Harry Eflin, former agent, led me into, you know, you want to be in the mailroom at an agency. And that's where I started at WME. And that took off to all of these other, all of these other steps that happened for me. That's so funny, Karina. We've never talked about this, but the Scorsese stuff, first of all, that's awesome. Um, <laughs> I want to find it, honestly. I'd be horrified, but I really should dig it up. <laughs> well, second of all, I think you are very much selling yourself short there on the creativity, on the creative front. I'm going to like um, put you on the spot for a second because Kelly has heard me, my girlfriend Kelly has heard me talk about this quite a bit the last few days. Karina is, you're very, very good narratively. Like yeah. you had, there's, it's, it's kind of, for me anyway, story is kind of a language where you either understand and are intuitive with it or you're not, or it's like me with, Spanish or any other language don't, you know, it's you're translating in your head. You're not thinking inherently in the natural language, but you see things, you understand, you notice like, well, this, if we want this effect, it has to be presented this way initially so we can subvert that. Or we're trying to explore this thematically. And really these two things together are additive towards what we're trying to say or explore. And yeah, I mean, and then certainly on the producing side, like, that's, I imagine as an agent, this was good, some good training too. Like 
you're very good at knowing when to suggest and when to let people find. And that's a really tough skill, I, I feel anyway, because I struggle with it when I'm helping other people find their stories or things of that nature. So not, I, w- I would not discredit or discount yourself there at all. I tell Scott this all the time, too. She's a master communicator. I, I'm having these conversations all these times with climate scientists and policymakers. And I was thinking of Karina. I was thinking you would be able with your creative storytelling to synthesize these complicated issues in a way that can be understood simultaneously on all levels because they take too long to explain things. And so, you know, so that's an open invitation if you want to be introduced to some of these people. Because you have I'll, both I'll of you. I'll take, I'll wear my moon man hat and make the world a slightly better place with the skills that I have. I'm happy to. Well, you know, thank you for, you know, an illuminating conversation. And, you know, of course, on the book and the whole team for putting together this very serious work that makes us reflect on the important issues of our time and also reflect on our own personal responsibility. So thank you, Kyle Higgins and Karina Manishil for your contributions to immersive storytelling, sharing your insights into creativity and the complexity of the human condition and your reflections on our collective responsibilities to try to make the world a better place. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast and the creative process. Thank you. Oh, that was great. We have some fun. <laughs> yeah, but the, and that's the great thing about it is that we can read it once for the entertaining flow, but then we can think about with this world building that you do, what is our personal responsibility? So multiple readings. Thank you for having us. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer on this episode was Sam Myers. The Creative Process is produced by Mia Funk. Additional production support by Sophie Garnier. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.